We're going to uh, start a short series on the book of Ruth. Um, as you're finding the book of Ruth, which is uh, Old Testament, um, first five books of the Bible, and then you get Judges uh, and Joshua, and uh, Joshua and Judges, and then you'll get to Ruth. And uh, just to let you know that, um, um, but if you'd like uh, a sort of like a, a study guide that you could follow on your own in between uh, some of these Sundays, then uh, the guy who wrote it, Tim Chester, is a great, uh, great church leader uh, in the north of England, and a good writer and prolific. And is helpful. So these are here. If you'd like to either borrow or buy, then please uh, come and take one from the front at some stage uh, in the morning. The the theme, the sort of the way we'll hold it all together, is about where's God? Where's God's hand? Um, and, and today, what I want to talk about is where's God's hand in, in our suffering, in our times of suffering. And I want to do it through two lenses, really, or with two purposes in mind. I want to talk to you who might be going through a really, really tough time. Okay, so I kind of like, if, I, I don't know where you are or exactly what's going on for you, but if, that, if you're in that category, I kind of like want you to be able to hear this for yourself But the secondary group of people I'd like to hear this are those who are carrying other people who are going through a really tough time. So it might be, truth be known, that actually life for you is fine. I mean, we've all got our sort of like, it niggles, but actually life might be fine for you, but you know you're carrying it for someone else. And I'm wanting to just explore together, how do we help when people are suffering? And what help do we get uh, in our own suffering? So that's kind of like the, the twin uh, audience, if you will. Um, some of you, when um, you've heard me say, oh, I'm going to preach on Ruth, a number of people go, oh, it's my favorite book. It's such a favorite book. And, it's kind of, and I understand why, because it's, like, it's small, it's a story, it's a simple story in many senses. And, um, and, and in some ways... It can be read as one of those, ah, stories. Poor old Ruth, husband dies. She finds then a rich man who provides for her and all is well. And they all live happily ever after. And and in some ways, and that's not what you said to me, but in some ways, any hearing of a story like that dismisses the real story of Ruth. Ruth, the book of Ruth is more complicated than that. It's actually richer than that. And it needs to be because life is more complicated than every single woman needs a good man. <laughs> right? Some of the women are going, yeah, dead right. <laughs> because in some ways, the danger is if you read it in a certain way, actually what you do is you embrace a culture that pulls you away from the one in whom you get satisfaction. And to those of us who have daughters and granddaughters, one of the things that we want to say to our children, male and female, is your whole future is not bound up in one other person. That is not your primary identity. You may or may not be married. You may or may not be in relationship. Actually, that's not the deal. That's not the primary deal, because all your longing cannot be found in one other person. 
And Ruth is a complicated story, as I said. It's a story about power. It's a story about how you make decisions. It's a story about hope. It's a story about, is it okay to plan? (laughs) Is it okay to almost take your life in your own hands and make good decisions? It's a story about generosity. It's a story about aging. It's a story about bitterness. It's a story about coming to terms with where you actually are. And ultimately... It's a story about God. But like all good stories, it begins by plunging you into the problem. That's how we begin. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went together with his wife and his two sons and they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they'd lived there about 10 years. After they'd lived there 10 years, both Marlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to a son or sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. My daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother goodbye, mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God My God, where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Simple setup, really. There's a famine in the land, probably drought, and one family decided that they would take matters into their own hand and they would go and find a future. They ended up staying much longer than they imagined. They stayed for 10 years, and one by one, every male member of that family started to die. I wonder when things go wrong for you, how you try and make sense of it. Because we're we kind of, I think as humans, we're almost like wired to, to try and make sense of our own lives and what's going on. I wonder how you make sense. I've, I've thought of perhaps a few ways that are common, but they're not exhaustive. You might have others. But when you ask why, for some people it's like, I deserved it. <laughs> we try and make a pattern of why are we going through a really hard time? Well, I must have done something wrong. And it reflects this sort of deep down belief that unless you keep yourself really right before God, God's always looking for an excuse to put you down. I deserved it. It's my own fault. For some people, they have a sort of like a mantra that goes, it always happens to us. It always happens to us. This, this is just, look, it's just our bad luck. We've always had this sort of stuff. It always happens to people like us. It's kind of like fate. For other people, it's like weakness. It just must be me. It just must be me. Everybody else seems to manage it. It must just be a problem I have. I don't deserve it, but it's, I can't cope. It must just be me. For others, it's no meaning. It's just pointless. There's no meaning at all in it. And for other people, they blame. It's someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault when something goes wrong. And it's just finding a hook to pin it on someone else. Someone's put me down. Someone's done something bad to me. Something in the past has caused me this. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And we pin it on someone else. Have I missed any? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, 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 that's not an arrogant statement. As I don't think I have. It's, have I missed any? Or do you see enough there to go, actually, I find myself there sometimes. <clears throat> And then for us who are Christians, it's even worse, isn't it? <laughs> this is when being a Christian really doesn't help very much. Because now you think, well, where's God? <laughs> I thought God was supposed to be involved here. And you either end up then thinking that God's absent or that God's punishing you. How do you make sense of it when everything goes wrong? How do we help one another make sense of things when everything goes wrong? When it's, this is not what we expected. I want you to imagine two women walking down the road. An older woman and a younger one. But they come, if you could look at them face on, you would see that they come from very different backgrounds. They come from different parts of the territory. And um, because you might not automatically remember where those are, let me show you. So you've got, on this little map, you've got uh, Naomi. This, they're in that sort of area around Jerusalem in, in what was known as the Kingdom of Judah, the Southern Kingdom. It's in that area. And that's where the drought happened. That's where the famine took place. And so Elimelech and his family, Naomi's husband, presumably 
they would have walked that way to get to Moab. So they, I mean, maybe they took a, I don't know. I suppose they could have taken a boat, couldn't they? Thinking about it. Anyway, I don't think this is absolutely central to my sermon. I might be wrong, and um, I'm sure some of you will want to talk to me about this later, about actually how they got across there. But um, anyway, somehow or other, they got a flight from Jerusalem, and they ended up in Moab. And the thing you need to know, the simple thing you need to know about Moab is that they're the enemy. They're the enemy. Look at the two women walking down the road. And hear the older woman. Hear her talk. I thought the judges would be able to save us. I thought the judges would sort things. In the days when the judges ruled, God raised up people. I thought God would give us someone who could deal with this situation. A famine happens. And when famine happens, of course, in a sense, no one can stop a famine. But in a sense, when a famine happens, everybody looks and says, well, I thought the government should have done something. Surely they should have saved more grain. I thought the judges would save us. Hear the older woman speak to the younger woman. I thought we would have saved ourselves. Some of you know how it feels to be a Limelech. The bravery of a family, a Limelech and Naomi, the bravery to say, let's leave our home place and let's go to a place that will be uncomfortable, but we'll do it because actually that's the future. It's the only future we have. We'll leave. And some of you know from firsthand how that feels. We thought, she says, we would have saved ourselves. Listen to the older woman talk to the younger woman and say, we thought we'd be back by now. We only went while there was a famine. We thought the rains would come again. Verse two, a man from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Verse four, after they'd lived there about 10 years, Never expected to last this long. Never expected to be here this long. Living amongst the people that are not our people. Listen to the older woman say to the younger woman, I thought we'd be back soon and I thought we'd have a future. Listen to the older woman go, my husband's died. I am defenseless. My boys have died. They, their wives are defenseless. Some of you have had to deal with this, but no parent, it's a cliche, but it's true, no parent should see their children die. It's not the way it's designed to be, but can you imagine both, all your family's gone. Listen to the old woman. Can you see the two women, two outsiders, two undefended women, Two powerless women, two widows, two childless widows. Can you see an older woman who goes, I am so bitter against God. That when she's met by people from the village and they go, it's Naomi, isn't it? Don't you dare call me Naomi. I've changed my name. Just call me bitter. (laughs) Well, 
Bitterholic. <laughs> Sounds like a drink, actually. <laughs> but, but that's what she says. Just call me bitter. And I'm bitter. And she's bitter about life, but she's bitter about God. God's arms against me. God's hands against me. God hasn't worked for me. God has been against, God's afflicted me, she says. Don't you call me blessed. Can you see her? What would you say to her? <laughs> Too close to home. <laughs> what would you say? Well, you see, the problem, Naomi, is that I don't think you should ever have left home. I think you should have trusted God and stayed in your own place. I think the problem came when you took matters into your own hands. Scripture doesn't say that, but it's kind of interesting that some of the early commentators in the Jewish tradition said that. And they sound more like Job's comforters. There's no indication that it's their fault. You might want to sit with her and go, Naomi, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. How many of us say that to one another? It'll be okay. And it's kind of like the equivalent of you cross your fingers and just hope it's going to, it's going to be okay. How do you know it's going to be okay? She will say to you, but I'm powerless I can't create a family. She has that fascinating conversation with her two daughter-in-laws. And um, I don't know how you read that, but there's two ways of reading it, isn't there? There's this sort of like gentle way of reading it. These daughters-in-law. All right. And they go, no, we're going to stick with you. And Naomi's going, I don't want you to stick with me. Go home. No, no. We're going to be right with you. And the mother-in-law goes, no. Go home. <laughs> and they had that brilliant conversation. And Naomi is just really down to earth. Look, I haven't got a husband, and I'm probably past childbearing. And even if I did get a husband tonight, and even if we did have a child, are you going to wait? No, you're not going to wait. Go home. And, and Ruth clings to her. And I wonder, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you, I, I think Scripture allows us to do this. I'm, I'm wondering whether Naomi's going, I cannot cope with you two as well. Because who's going to look after me? And I've got you two to be bothered about, and you two are foreigners and we're going home. Nobody in the welcoming committee is going to go, oh, great, Moabites. And I'm wondering whether Naomi's going, leave me. And some of you know emotionally, when you're that bitter, you don't want anybody near you. The last thing you want are two young women going, we'll go with you. Oh, no. <laughs> leave. You might want to say to her, Naomi, God's not against you. And he wasn't, but the pain is so great 
But sometimes you want to say it too quick and you say it too quick because actually you want, to sl- you want to close down someone else's pain. Maybe you just want to say the story's not over. So what is God doing? In situations like this, what is God doing? Well, the first thing to say is God's doing nothing miraculous. The book of Ruth has no miracles. He's got none of that. But what God is doing is a story of providence. Providence is the ongoing care of God in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. That's what the story is about. We do have a God of miracles and we do have books of the Bible that have miracles, sometimes almost like one after another, but not here. This is not one of those stories. The story is of can you trace the providence of can you trace the hand of God and the providential hand of God when there are no miracles? This is a story about people having to make decisions. This is about a story about a woman about women not taking uh, not taking no for an answer. This is a story about an honourable woman and an honourable man and daring women. This is a story about a new future. And I want to suggest that actually Ruth's really helpful because I think this is what faith looks like to most of us. This is what faith looks like. You see, to be br- brutally honest, nobody has problems believing when miracles happen. But actually, on the days where you have to just keep on walking, you have to make, keep on making decisions, where you have to keep searching for the providential hand of God, actually, that's the walk of faith. So what is God doing? He's sowing the seeds of a new future. He's going from emptiness to fullness. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, which means house of bread, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This emptiness to fullness. Verse 21, the the chapter ends that they get back just as the barley harvest was beginning. It's a beautiful sort of brackets. From emptiness to fullness. You've got Ruth in the midst of this, who becomes a convert, if you will. Who knows what has happened to Ruth in the 10 years in Moab with this family. But she's seen enough about this family to say, I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. I want, um, she says, um, where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord. And when you see, if you're reading this, if you see the Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's because it translates from Yahweh. So in other words, this is now the language, the name that, the Jews knew God by. It's their covenant name for God. In other words, what I'm trying to say is Ruth's coming in and saying it's not just like gods because they had their gods in Moab. It was called Chemosh. Wasn't a great God, but it was a God. It's not a great, it's just a general God, but actually this is the Yahweh God. This is the God of the covenant. I want to be part of the covenant. I want to come in. She becomes a convert. God wraps them into his purpose. And there's a harvest coming. What do you say to people when it's all going wrong 
and they can't see God and there's no miracles. God's still at work. His hand is working out his purpose. And it's a hand that will always move towards fullness and not emptiness. And how can you be so sure of that? I was thinking about it and it reminded me of another group of women gathered round a cross. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Just in brackets if you're interested. Uh, there's a bit of a debate about how many women were actually there. Um, whether it's Mary and Mar- Mary's sister, Mary, people think that's unlikely, that even in the least creative families, <laughs> people would normally give two girls two different names as to calling them both Mary. So we think there's mother, mother's sister, two people, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there's three Marys and one woman who's not named. I know that doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things, but it's interesting to me. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You've got another little group of women You've got at least one widow and one woman who's lost a son. But you've got four women who go, the future's gone. And on the cross, Jesus begins a new future. Can you see it? Life bursts from death. Around the cross, emptiness The emptiness is poured out, but that leads to life. Around the cross, grace overcomes death. Around the cross, the lament doesn't get the last word, but the joy of resurrection does. So are there any words that are helpful to those of us who might be going through the lament? And the first is, this is what I want to say. For you that are in the hardest of days, actually, lament is appropriate. You don't need to rush forward to praise. There's some days where lament is absolutely appropriate. There's some days where you uh, sort of allow your complaints to come before God. And God's the right place to bring them to. And it's not that somehow you're letting the side down and it's not somehow that God's going to be cross with you for saying what you think is unthinkable. But actually lament is a part of our spirituality, a spiritual tradition. It's there in the Psalms, all the way through the Psalms. You know that. But it's actually part of what your relationship with God is about. On the days when everything seems to be caving in, lament is fine. And for those of you that carry other people, Let them lament too. The second thing I'd want to say to those of us who might be struggling with the way of the world, keep walking. Keep making decisions. Keep allowing God to weave a new story. Don't stop. 
in your lament, don't allow that to paralyze you, but keep walking. And it's linked with the third thing, which is don't stop the story. Don't give up. If you need to wrestle, wrestle with God, but don't give up. Don't stop the story. And I think we stop the story when actually what we go is, God, you can't do nothing now. I'm leaving you. Don't stop the story. And fight to trust the Lord of life. The God who is at work. The God who's at work in messy families and messy marriages and messy workplaces and messy personal lives and messy churches. It's the Lord of life. Something new can begin. And it doesn't detract from everything that's gone in the past, but it's the seeds of hope that something new can begin. It's this. That even when there's nothing left but rubble, God is mysteriously at work in the mess. Even when there's nothing left but rubble, God is mysteriously at work in the mess. I don't know if this sounds as, comf- as, as comforting as I hoped it would. So let me bring it in by saying these things. Number one, some of you for whom this is too close to home because it's you, you're in the right place this morning. I mean physically, just being here. And some days it's a bit of a struggle to get here. Not for any other reason, except it's like I've got to drag myself here. Because left to your own devices, it would be it's easier to stay away. But actually coming and being amongst the people of God, coming and being with your brothers and sisters, coming and being in a context where prayer is offered, coming, in a, coming into a context where we do sing, in a context where someone stands at the front and says, look, the God of the Bible is still at work in our lives. You put yourself in the right place. It's kind of like the most difficult spiritual discipline you make, but it's absolutely the correct one to do. The irony is that if you're not a Christian, actually people turn up in church when they're in trouble if you're not a Christian. The irony is that most Christians stay away when they're in trouble. You're in the best place. The second thing I'd want to say to you that are running through this for yourself is you may not have seen the miracle that would have made everything change. But what you can discern is the hand of God who is working providentially for you. And God is going to do something bigger than your desire for a miracle. Because the desire that you had for a miracle was to fix that one problem. But actually what God wants to do is something much bigger. And that's the story of Ruth. You see, they walked into that village thinking, I've got a problem. I've got no husband. And she's got no husband. Actually, that wasn't the biggest issue. God was doing something much bigger. And sometimes when we're looking for the miracle, the miracle doesn't do everything that God wants to do. And the third thing I'd want to say to you that are struggling this morning in the mess is that 
It's not that God's just going to get you out of the mess, but God's at work in the myster- mysteriously in the midst of the mess. So to you that are carrying things with other people, can you be the good news people who will walk alongside people and not give the easy answers and not just say, oh, it'll be fine, but actually walk closely, listen carefully, believe hopefully that actually God is at work in the mess. I'm done. It's offered as ever with the hope that in the midst of it, there's something that God might want to do in you. I was chatting to someone on this week about sermons and about what sermons are for. Sermons are not really primarily, in my view, there to teach, because I don't think this is the best teaching mechanism. Actually, I think what sermons do at their best is they create a space in which God can do something at their best. And that happens when you and I get enable ourselves to be honest and, and I think that's why sometimes when you're really, really in trouble that's why Christians don't come to church because they know there's going to be enough spaces and you might end up crying and, and I, I, I get it I get that's why people stay away when they're really in difficulties because it's like it's too vulnerable but actually it's that very vulnerability that God can do something with and that's the value of church so I kind of just want to ask the spirit to come and do some stuff should we pray together and I suppose it begins by us um, I suppose really basically the really most basic thing is work out are you the one in the mess or are you carrying someone else's mess Who are you? And it's owning up to that. And it sounds obvious, but sometimes owning up to the fact that I'm the one in the mess, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Holy Spirit, come and rest upon us, we pray. I just want to welcome the Spirit just to come and to rest on you. You that wrestle, you that are struggling, you that are aware of things being a mess. I just want to pray that the Spirit would just come and rest on you right now. And in this moment, that that Holy Spirit can do something in you that would actually bring new life and bring new hope. I pray that the Spirit would just rest on you. It's the Spirit who was there at creation overseeing the darkness and when the earth was without form and there was void. And it's that sort of picture of sort of emptiness and chaos. And that's where the Spirit, the writer of Genesis said, the Spirit brooded over the waters. It's kind of like just was nurturing something. And then something new began. 
And to you that feel, I could own that, I could understand that, it feels like void and chaos, I just pray that the Spirit would just come and brood on you, that that picture of the Spirit, like a bird just hovering over you, would be yours. Come Holy Spirit. I pray you'd come and fill us. I pray you'd come and start something new. I pray you'd come and give us strength and faith that gift of faith that comes by the Spirit, that that would be ours, that, Lord, your Spirit would rest upon us and we would look to you, the one who holds our future. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. I want to pray for those of you that feel like you're carrying someone else's weight. And the aspect of the Spirit I'd want to pray for you is wisdom to know what to do and what to say. Come, Holy Spirit, and rest on you. Come, Holy Spirit. Shall we?